Kind of bright in here, Paige. Yeah. I haven't got my makeup on, so it's, you know, I just have to turn it down. As you get older, you turn the lights down lower and lower until finally you just give a Dharma talk in the dark. Good evening. Welcome to Spirit Rock. We used to sing at the family program when I used to go to the family program when my daughter was a child. They had a song, Welcome to Spirit Rock. That was nice. A little sappy, you know. Um, So I'm Kevin Griffin. This is the Dharma and Recovery class gathering that happens once a month here. I'm very happy to 
be able to do it. It's, uh, it is an honor to be uh, invited or allowed to do this. So uh, I continue to be grateful for that. I, um, for those of you who attend regularly, you know that this is the uh, prelude to the actual entertainment. Oh, and according to my, the clock, I'm, I'm not getting paid yet, so I should just wait for another minute till the clock turns over before I punch in. Uh, kidding. Um, I also am known for my witty sense of humor. If that's not redundant, I think a witty sense of humor is redundant. Um, the warrior. Let's not talk about them. It's depressing. Um, but uh, what I was playing there, I, I, uh, you know, many of you know I'm a musician, and uh, so I go through various kind of phases. I guess everybody does this, right? You get hooked. You start thinking about some musician, and you know, it's, uh, and start listening to them a lot. And I mean, we live in a time when you know it's so remarkable what's available, but. One of the things that's so striking to me is is uh, the the music that's that has been produced in this country, uh, particularly over the last sixty years, and and um, that was the Staple Singers from 1957 when Mavis was 18, uh, and I never heard that, you know, because I didn't listen to gospel radio <laughs> in the 50s. Um, and so, you know, you discover these things, and I, I feel almost like ashamed of myself for not realizing. So I just, the reason I got started listening to it, I was in my local um, uh, independent bookstore called Pegasus on Solano Avenue in Berkeley, and there was this book, I'll Take You There, Mavis Staples, Staples Singers and the Music That Shaped the Civil Rights Era. I know it has nothing to do with Dharma, like in an obvious way, although their music is extremely dharmic, uh, full of love and peace and wisdom. Um, So the great thing, you know, I'm reading this and it's like mentioning some song they recorded in 1954 and I just go on the internet, go boom, and it plays for me and then I'm reading about it. it, I hate reading about, not hate, but I get uncomfortable when I'm reading about music and I'm just hearing the, reading the words about it, and then not hearing what is it, what do they mean? Because you can't you can't describe music, you know. How do you? It's so interesting, isn't it? How indescribable music is. It's like describing red to a blind person, right? Uh, or what does mustard taste like? You know. Um, so I've been having a lot of joy from that, just sitting there reading and listening, and you know. My my music source of choice is YouTube, because uh, I like the way they just st- they just like start to, they take you on a little trip. I mean, obviously a bunch of sites do that, but and then sometimes you get like moving pictures, uh, sometimes called you know movies or whatever people call them. So you know they I wound up getting the Staple Singers on Soul Train. This afternoon, I was like, oh my God, ah, so great. Uh, so I just couldn't help uh, playing that. That was their first hit, hit song. It was called Uncloudy Day of all the strange things. 
but they were a, totally a gospel band at that time. So um, I'm going to go through a couple other books for you. This is like the book club tonight. So before, we're going to, um, for those who haven't been here before, we're going to meditate shortly. But I'm just going to talk a little bit more. The Joy of Half a Cookie. This is a book on mindful eating uh, by Jean Christeller, who's a, a researcher, an academic, and also you know a meditator who uh, I've worked with. At, uh, she was doing, they were doing research at UCSF uh, on mindful eating. And so this is her, her book, um, which is uh, you know, basically uh, training in mindful eating. So if that's something you're interested in, it's got a lot of great tools in it. Um, and she has a program called MB Eat. And one of her, the woman that she teaches with actually teaches out here sometimes, Andrea uh, Lieberstein. She uh, does m- mindfulness-based eating awareness training, MB Eat. So, and I like the title, The Joy of Half a Cookie. A, and this one, this is a little scary. It's called The Craving Mind. I didn't really want to read it, but I... But uh, Walt Opie suggested it. From cigarettes to smartphones to love, why we get hooked and how we can break bad habits. It's a little fundamentalist uh, mindfulness, but it's got a lot of really interesting stuff. He's a researcher, mindfulness researcher, and and he kind of nails a bunch of things about about craving. But I don't. He's not really addressing uh, drugs and alcohol, so I feel like it's kind of like. Too easy. <laughs> Take on the hard stuff. You want to talk about craving? <laughs> well, and, and uh, I was saying to my wife that my, one of my uh, the things that I have trouble with or kind of feel don't like is that different kind of approaches to recovery seem to operate in these independent spheres without sort of like communicating to each other. So like researchers just are into their thing, but they don't want to talk about the 12 steps. And if you're going to go to a 12-step meeting, they won't talk about research. And so instead of learning from each other and supporting each other with the different tools, everybody kind of gets in their camp and sort of takes a stance like, this is the way, like, you have to have God or you, you, know, you don't you need the steps or, or you know, trying to disprove each other's whatever. And then you have treatment centers and therapists and, and uh, I find it frustrating because nobody's got the answer, you know. Nobody's, nobody has the answer for addiction. That's really why I don't and have not created a program because I don't feel like I want to take that stance of here's the way you should do it. I think there are many different approaches that can be useful for different people. There's a lot of different tools we, that are available. Everybody's not going to respond to the same approach and I think there's a lot of useful stuff in all those camps and, and why would I want to like 
say, well, this is the way to do it, and like, discount everything else. Yeah. That's the way. So that's my editorial for this evening. This thing is a meditation bell, in case you thought it was like a place for my soup. You know. I mean, if, you know, if somebody used this as their begging bowl, you'd probably figure they had a problem. You know. Like, dude, I think you better read this book about mindful eating, because like, you're, you're getting too much food. <laughs> yeah, but I only get one meal a day. I might get hungry. Yeah. Uh, or you might kill yourself. Okay, so, oh, thanks, Paige. This is happening next weekend, and there's actually people who are signed up for it, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> wait until you hear the title, and you'll know what. Sutta Recovery, whatever that is. Maybe I'll, I'll explain it. Early Buddhist teachings on clinging and letting go. So sutta is the same as the word sutra, which is a more common word. So it's like the, the earliest Buddhist teachings that we, we know about in the Pali Canon. I'm using them as a framework for talking about recovery. And it's really experimental. <laughs> so uh, I think people just want to come and meditate. They figure they're just going to get Kevin. And so it's, it's always pretty much the same thing, whatever he... He claims to be talking about different things, but it's always just the same thing. But it's going to be interesting. I, I have a, I have a whole, I have about a dozen suttas, and I'm going to. Everybody's going to get their little uh, printout of, of suttas, uh, and then we're going to kind of read them and think about them and meditate. And yeah, but that was going through the steps. People are into that. Nobody cares about this. It's like totally obscure. Yeah, that's right. Well, all right, I've got the club. Let's, let's ring the bell and then meditate finally. So you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze if you're not comfortable closing your eyes in a group. You come inside, feeling your body sitting. Letting the body soften Having a sense of settling, releasing tension, Letting the belly 
be soft. Breath to move deeply into the body. A balance in the posture, so there's a feeling of alignment and stability. Noticing where there are any sensations in the body. Feeling the whole body as a single thing, a single object. It feel like to be in a body. Even as we sit in stillness, we can feel activity. pulses in the body, points of tingling, points of heaviness, warmth or coolness, lightness. Just that sense of energy flowing through the body, the nervous system, sending signals to the brain. Quite striking how active the body actually is at rest. Breath is constantly moving in the body, blood flowing. There's perception of sound, letting that in. Subtle sounds coming from the building, from other people in the room. I'd hear some sounds from outside. The beginning of mindfulness. to look for or try to create any special experience, almost the opposite. Looking at the most common, simple experience of being awake and alive. 
actually takes a bit of effort, not a not a aggressive effort, but a kind of intention, a strong intention to feel the subtle sensations of body and to hear the sounds. We're so used to taking these things for granted. The idea that what's going on in our head, our thinking, is the important thing. The way mindfulness turns that upside down. And why the term mindful maybe isn't the best because it points being about your mind. Whereas the first foundation of mindfulness is body, and it's really the, the most useful and reliable aspect of mindfulness to just pay attention to sensations and sounds. Things we can sense here and now. So we use the breath as a concentration object, kind of a central focus. Really just the sensation, the felt experience of breathing. Again, not because this is something mystical or so special, just because it's available to us. Essentially a neutral experience, at least as we first engage with it. You can pay attention to the feeling of the breath at the nostrils, the air coming in and out, or the belly arising and falling. Just that movement. Whichever is easier for you to feel and to be with.
It seems that as soon as we choose something to pay attention to, the mind wants to do something else. Think about something else or pay attention to something else. That's the natural part of this process, the mind going off on its own, what we call the untrained mind. Our practice is to come back. Our practice isn't to stay here, it's to come back. Kind of acknowledgement from the start that we can't hold the mind in one place. We may develop more of a capacity, concentration, But even that is unsustainable. That puts us in a position having to figure out a way to work with that, that intrinsic failure. We're given simple instructions and we can't follow them, at least most of the time. How do we respond to that? So easy to turn that into another self-judgment, giving ourselves a failing grade But that's not helpful. It misses the point. Aren't trying to learn to be unkind to ourselves. We already know how to do that. Trying to learn, at least part of what we're trying to learn is to be kind to ourselves. So we get to practice being kind. When we realize the mind has wandered. What's the kind response? Uh, 
Well, if you notice what happens when the mind wanders, see that there's a kind of stress. That's where stress comes from, to a great extent. Feel tension in your body. Breath gets more shallow. Whatever, it's not pleasant. So if you're experiencing something unpleasant, what's a skillful response? Well, the Buddha would say, at least I believe the Buddha would say, that compassion is the skillful response to suffering. That's one way we can be kind to ourselves in our meditation. Knowledge, this is difficult and sometimes unpleasant. It is difficult to be in a body and mind. There's no words that are necessarily going to make us feel better, that are going to really express compassion particularly. We have to learn bring a feeling of kindness, an attitude of kindness. ourselves brings us back to just the idea of softening feel that stress or tension softening the body of course letting go of the thought not letting the thoughts persist any more than they need to or any more than they have a power to do. We perform a kind of gentle intervention on ourselves. Lovingly detaching ourselves from the thoughts. Of course, these 
kind of thoughts, deeply conditioned, very habitual. They don't stop simply because we've noticed them once or we've let go of them once. Our practice needs to be persistent. Again, this persistence. Do it with a gentleness. So easy to fall into a struggle or conflict with the mind. is why we practice because we have to work with these subtle movements of mind and body how to let go how to to treat ourselves kindly takes time try to be patient with yourself you didn't create this mind Create these thoughts. We are the results of past causes and conditions playing out in the present moment. Causes and conditions were choices of ours, many were not. Again, compassion is the wise and sensible response. practice is to let go and come back to the breath.
was a little more talking than I usually do, so I apologize if that uh, interrupted your meditation. Are there any questions? Do you have a question, Shane? Yeah, I just like to, this is a time when I take questions, usually just meditation questions, uh, if there are any. All out there, all over the place here. Yeah, that's right. They had the breakthrough. Well, um, I was talking before the evening about blending loving kindness with mindfulness. So that was kind of where I went with that uh, guided meditation. Uh, you know, typically. Mindfulness is taught as one practice, and then loving kindness is taught as a, a different practice. Uh, but um, it's kind of a, it's not a, a real separation, and it's not actually a helpful separation. Um, because, first of all, when we practice mindfulness, what comes up for many of us is, is difficult stuff. Um, or it's just difficult to do. So, um, so bringing a quality of kindness or gentleness to that experience is really important because otherwise it can really become this kind of struggle. And I think it's one of the things that people, um, when people say it's hard to meditate or they don't like to meditate, I think it's a lot about this, that that uh, struggle with what they see and kind of, you know, oh, I shouldn't be having these thoughts or I'm not able to come back to my breath the way I'm supposed to, you know, get these ideas about doing it right or wrong. And, and, and then so the mindfulness practice becomes this painful experience. So who's going to want to do that? You know, it doesn't... And that, that's obviously not the point of mindfulness practice. So, so it's really important to have this understanding that what's happening is natural and uh, as I said during the guided meditation that the, that the wise response to our own suffering is compassion for ourselves rather than judging ourselves why am I suffering this way what's wrong with me you know, and isn't, isn't it amazing what we do that that we you know I'm feeling bad and now I feel bad about feeling bad like where do we get that kind of thinking? You know, not helpful. Um, and so, so we can see how to intentionally bring in an attitude of kindness towards whatever arises then really makes the mindfulness practice uh, really much more useful and, and more enjoyable. But beyond that, it 
it allows it to um, really flower in a way that that kind of oppressing it and judging it doesn't. And on the other side, loving kindness. You know, sometimes we get this idea that loving kindness practice is just feel good and love everybody. You know, like just I love, I love, I love you know, may all beings be happy. Oh, you know, ha ha. And you know, a very superficial understanding of loving kindness. You know, what because ha- what, what happens when you start to try to send love to everybody? Well, the first thing that's the first instruction we often get is to send loving kindness to ourselves. So right away, there's a problem <laughs> if you've been if you have this attitude of like not liking yourself. So we need to have mindfulness with the loving kindness to see where the loving kindness is kind of going off and to be able to bring it back. And then as we work with loving kindness, all right, we might start to then move into sending loving kindness to people we care about. Okay, so that feels good. And then we're supposed to send it to somebody neutral. And it's like, what? Then there's there can be confusion or there can be like, well, this is boring. I'm going to go back to sending loving kindness to people I love. And so, and then, oh, now you're supposed to send to somebody difficult. Uh, I can't do it. Well, so then we can start to notice, oh, I kind of, I want to feel good. So my tendency is to kind of get, I'll just do that good part, you know. I don't really need to do all that other nasty stuff. Uh, so we, what are we seeing? We're seeing our tendency to want to feel good. Nothing wrong with that tendency, right? But it is the thing that causes addiction. So it has some problems. It has a downside, right? If we become attached to feeling good all the time, if we can't hold or be with the difficult feelings. And besides, you know, what is this world we live in? You know, if we create this world of preference. Here's the people I love and I'm going to be nice to them and then there's the people I don't like and I'm just going to get rid of them or like send them bad vibes or ignore them. Well, we're just reproducing the whole way that the world is a mess. <laughs> we're just playing that out in our, in our spiritual life. Like, Well, that's not exactly helpful. So this challenge of, can I be with my negative feelings, the, my, my feelings of not liking someone, being afraid of someone, even hating someone? What, how can I, you know, can I work with that? Can I see it? Can I, can I find a way, some way in, to diffuse that, just at least to the extent that I'm not, in this us-and-them relationship. And that brings us back again to the, to the compassion practice, which says all beings suffer. You know? And in fact, people who harm you or you, who you perceive as doing harm are actually suffering probably more <laughs> than many people because there, when people do harmful things, it's because they are filled with 
negativity, with hate, with judgment, with, with greed. And so that person that you hate because they're mean and nasty, well, they're already doing it to themselves. You don't need to add, in, add on. And, and it also gives us that opportunity to say, you know, do I have that within me as well, right? So that's another, all these ways, actually, we need mindfulness in order to support this whole process of exploring and working with offering love to other beings. It's not a just simple thing, say these magic words, my heart opens up, flowers fall down from the sky. Um, it's, it's complex. Uh, so mindfulness and loving kindness, they're not separate practices. Um, and as some of you know, I'm working on some writing on this topic of loving kindness. Um, and it keeps... Um, so these things are starting to really bubble up a lot in my, in my practice and in my teaching. Um, and uh, it's one of the real uh, gifts of having this role that I have to think about things that otherwise I might take for granted. But I'll say, and, I'll, and with this, one of my teachers, a very you know, widely, highly respected monk, I've heard him say that he doesn't teach loving kindness because he sees mindfulness practice as not, that when one is practicing mindfulness wholeheartedly, that one is doing loving kindness practice already that if we are that mindfulness contains in it if we are being engaged and connected with ourselves with the world that there is this quality with it otherwise it's not really mindful you know it's just looking at stuff or judging things but to be really fully engaged with mindfulness means that there's this acceptance and connection that we're having with ourselves and with the world, which is in the very definition of loving kindness. So that's what you get when you don't ask questions. Let's take a short break and we'll ring a bell. And uh, I do have some books that I brought that are not available in the bookstore, my workbook. And then there are other of my books that are available in the bookstore and all kinds of goodies. So go and do mindful shopping or talking. And also, please, like, greet someone that you don't know, because we're all here together. Uh, okay, thanks.
singers.
Yeah, yeah, do ring the bell there. Thank you. I didn't ring this very loud. Oh, the Warriors are playing tonight, and I didn't even record the game. Uh, what am I going to do? Maybe they'll win. Welcome back. I mentioned um, last time I was here that uh, someone was asking me to talk more about the 12 steps at one of my classes. Um, and that I guess partly because I've been doing this book that's uh, that's not about recovery, and I kind of I'm actually intentionally not talking about recovery, which takes a bit of an effort. But uh, just thought I would see how that worked out. Maybe I'm not thinking about the steps as much as I have at times. Um, Oh, I was thinking about step three today, uh, given that it's March, and uh, you know, one person's complaint usually stays in my mind for a long time. So, uh, what if, I wonder if there's anybody who like mostly notices the nice things that people say about them, like. <laughs> You know, if you're if you publish a book and then you know you go on Amazon, you can read what people say about your book, which is another form of masochism. <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know, because I, I I rarely do that, but for some reason I I was doing that the other day, and uh, and mostly people say nice things about my books, uh, and there was one comment that was. It wasn't even like a bad comment. It was just like not a compliment. And uh, and I was thinking, having this thought, like I wonder if anybody, you know, doesn't notice those things. Like somebody who's just like who's in the public eye in some way, and you know, they just the thing that really sticks in your head, their head is. God, I really love the way they did this, you know? Because <laughs> instead, because it's like, you know, out of the 50 comments, the three negative ones are, oh my God, I've got to go back. That has nothing to do with step three that I know of, but uh, <laughs> it could. If, if you're, you know, one of my, uh, you know, talents is uh, connecting everything. But, uh, so, so I'm going to uh, tell you a little bit about my life tonight and, and my relationship to uh, 
I'll just say, to magic. Um, that when I was 19, I got interested in Edgar Cayce. How many people know who Edgar Cayce is? That's pretty good numbers. So Edgar Cayce, I will say, and you could correct me, but I'd say he was a psychic. Um, and it kind of, you know, we've had these sort of, it's one of the things that goes on in the world, but it's certainly in America that people kind of get really fascinated with people who have these different kinds of gifts. And, and he was he claimed to be a psychic, and I found that really fascinating. And, um, and somehow, I th- I, and I think what I found fascinating about it was that it seemed magical. I wanted to have something magical in my life, uh, something that would uh, not involve any effort on my part to get like special, wonderful things that I wanted. Um, and it was probably that, around that same time, probably in my, by the time I was in my early twenties, I was very into astrology. And I wasn't the only person in 1972 who was into astrology. Uh, But I really liked uh, astrology because it explained things uh, without having to do any kind of, you know, self-reflection. And I always figured that somehow if I, like, understood, like, you know, what day of the week, where the moon was and where Mercury was and in relation to my chart, that it was going to, like, give me the answers I needed, like, you know, solve problems for me. You know, again, kind of looking for something that was going to be just kind of a magical fix. And that was around the time, by the time I got into my mid-twenties, I was surviving as a professional musician. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I called a professional musician because I was getting paid to do it, but that was about the only thing that was professional about it. I mean, I, mean, I showed up and I played, so I guess... But uh, usually when you think of a professional musician, you see somebody, like, in a recording studio, you know, being really cool. Or, uh, no, like the Holiday Inn in Elmira, New York was like the the level of professional musician. It it might have been the Ramada, actually, in Elmira, but there were enough enough holiday inns that that'll do. Um, But, uh, and um, I did write songs, uh, but beyond like playing them for like my friends, uh, they never really saw the light of day. And yet, I had this idea that one day the phone was going to ring. And in fact, sometimes, literally when the phone would ring, I would say, it's the big break. As though, like, some record company executive would just, like, get my number, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know, look me up, you know, hear about me playing in Elmira, you know. <laughs> that guy who's playing disco in Elmira, I bet he could. I actually did play at the bitter end once, uh, if you know what that is. <laughs> there was uh, there, the guy who, the bitter end is a famous club in New York. Uh, where everybody played in the 60s and 70s, and it was the guy, the guy who started it was he died the other day, and I saw his I saw his obituary in the New York Times, and, and it had a famous the the wall behind the stage was brick, and you many times you'll see pictures of people performing there. They might not even be credited as bitter end, but you know it's the bitter end because the wall is brick. And I played on that stage once, but anyway, I didn't get the phone call after that either. So, but again, it was like this idea that something magical was hap- going to happen in my life. You know, that that was what was going to fix everything. You know, and meanwhile, of course, I was smoking marijuana and drinking. Uh, by then, by my, I, I, I did most of my hard drugs in my late teens and early 20s, but once I was playing in bars, I had to be conscious by at one o'clock in the morning, and so I had to kind of moderate it a little bit. Um, and besides, I just didn't have a good tolerance. Uh, anyway, uh, the point is, uh, I was the living, living a life of an addict and an alcoholic, and, which is also characterized by the idea that I can take this thing and it's going to fix my life. It's a magical thing. I don't have to make any real effort other than like finding the drugs or finding a dealer or you know, getting enough money to buy a beer or, or being in a band so they give you free beer. You know, That was a good idea. You know, when I encountered meditation, I thought like I'd really found the fix. You know, and I started meditating when I was 28. I was 28. TM and uh, and with TM, what I heard, this might not have been what they said, but this is what I heard: 20 minutes twice a day, and you'll experience cosmic consciousness in some reasonable period of time. Um, and so I just figured if I do my mantra for 20 minutes twice a day to the best of my ability I'm going to get this thing that I want that I don't know what it is but it really sounds good cosmic consciousness um, and, and that didn't happen they had asked they had required that you stop smoking marijuana for two weeks before you take the training which is why I was 28 when I started, because I started thinking about learning TM when I was about 18. So it took me about 10 years to get around to that, taking that two-week break. Uh, I thought it was an unreasonable expectation, really. Uh, and during that time, fortunately, I found that alcohol filled in adequately. So I just got drunk a little bit more uh, during those two weeks. But after the two weeks and I got the mantra and everything, I went back to smoking pot on a regular basis which somebody later on told me you weren't supposed to do. But I don't remember that part. I didn't hear that. Um, 
And the book that I remember reading, I didn't read a lot of Dharma in those days. I didn't really read much of anything, actually. Being stoned, you know, books are just kind of annoying. Or they're, they're too, for me, it was just like too much work. Um, but I, the, one, one of the books that I read was Autobiography of a Yogi, which I bet a lot of you have read. How many people have read Autobiography of a Yogi? Not that many. Uh, okay. It's fun. But the thing that I liked about it is how magical the stuff was in it. Like, this guy, this was, this is the guy, Paramahansa Yogananda, who founded the Self-Realization Fellowship. It's, it's a thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's from India, and he had like these, like, out-of-body things, and, you know, psychic things, and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, magic. You know, that's what I want. Give me some of that magic. Closest I ever came was this one time. No, that's a stupid story. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, it just involved soap, so really there wasn't anything. Um, so that didn't work, you know. And and so, um, wow, you know, when I found Buddhism, I figured I'd found the real mother load. Uh, and, you know, when I started going on retreats, which are kind of magic in a way, I mean, they're, they're a hard kind of magic, they take a lot of work. But, um, you know, I went, I, I started practicing very intensely, and I, as you know, many of you, if you've read my books, you know a lot of this, this part of the story, that, you know, I went on this three-month retreat, and really, like, that's got to do it. Whatever is supposed to happen is going to happen. Like, I'm going to be fixed. I'm going to come out of there. I'm going to have the, the phone's going to ring. You know, the big break is going to come. They're going to hear about me meditating and say, we have to sign this guy to a record deal. You know, I mean, I don't know where I get these ideas. But I, it, it was in there. It wasn't, maybe it wasn't conscious, but it was definitely in there. And in fact, I did write some songs while I was on the three-month retreat, but... They didn't, you know, they weren't on the radio or anything other than like my psychic radio. But I got, did the retreat, it's like, wow, that was kind of mind-blowing. And now I don't have a job and my girlfriend broke up with me and I don't have a place to live. Oh, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> so I scraped and scrounged, lived with a friend in Boston for a while, finally got a job, got in a band, kind of put my life back together that going on three-month retreat destroyed, I hate to tell me, tell you, but I uh, can do that. And then I met Ananda, you know, who was like this nondescript guy who walked into the bookstore I was working in and said, oh, if you do that, if you follow me and practice, uh, you know, put that Buddhism stuff, that, uh, here, I got the real thing, this will do it for you. So I left everything, and I went to live on faith with Ananda. Hitchhiked around the country, traveled around, flew out to Hawaii. To, because I was going to get fixed. It was, this was the magical thing I'd been waiting for. This was like, the, because, you know, what you really need is a guru, right? Everybody knows that. If you can just get that guru who's going to zap you, like, that's the one, right? 
what are they called? Shaktipat, you know, that, that thing that just get you good. Like, I mean, if the Buddha was here, we'd all be enlightened, right? I mean, he would just walk in the door and be... But anyway, you get me, you know. Things have gone downhill in the last 2,500 years. Well, uh, I don't know. If, you know if maybe, if I, maybe if I made six months with Ananda, it would have worked, but I couldn't handle it. Living on faith, I didn't have that much faith. So I wound up living you know, on the street in Venice Beach. Uh, and that was really my bottom. Uh, it wasn't an alcoholic you know, bottom in this sense that I got there by drinking, but it might as well have been. Because really, in a way, my drug was, you know, magic. It was like the search for magic, with the fix, whatever it was. And drugs and alcohol were one of them. Uh, And they, they, uh, uh, you know, they were tied up with all of this. But, uh, you know, I, I, I had to rebuild my life from there. Uh, that was 1982, and I got sober in 1985. So it took me three years to get my life together enough to realize I was an alcoholic. You know, <laughs> that means I was below my bottom. And you know, some of you know what I mean. You, you know, you get to a point where it's like you're you're not in a like when you're living on the street, you're homeless. It's not a good time to give up drinking. It's really <laughs> not. No. It's really advised that you keep drinking, and if you can, <laughs> if you can get a hold of anything, just drink that, smoke that, just keep doing that. You know, when I slept in my friends had a VW bus, they let me sleep in it. You know, that was nice. Summer of '82, '83, actually, or winter of '82, '83 was actually one of the rainiest uh, winters before this year. And that thing almost floated away, I'm telling you. Because, you know, Venice Beach used to be a bunch of canals anyway, and we were actually, anyway, it was parked on one of those old, not on the canal, what was a canal at one time. But anyway, that's a, I digress. So when I got to AA, you know, I, the idea that there was like going to be this God who was going to intervene and fix my life, I guess that kind of appealed to me, uh, honestly. You know, I kind of thought, oh yeah, I believe in God. And uh, good. You know, I'll turn my will and my life over to God. But it wasn't what I really, that's not what I thought I was doing, really. What I really was doing was abandoning magic. You know, I was really letting go of magic, letting go of that uh, false solution to the 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 uh, something out there that was going to intervene in my life. And and I was saying, fundamentally, I was saying life is okay as it is. I don't. It doesn't have. I don't need magic. And I was saying, if I want something, there's a process that's involved in getting it. And that's called work. You know, whatever it is, whether it's a job or something else, it's called work. 
was something that I had a tremendous aversion to. You know? I mean, I became a musician, you know, so that tells you a lot right there. You know what musicians do for a living? Play. We play. So, you know, this was a whole other way of understanding life. You know, life involved work, and it involved uh, um, this, this, the surrender. See, I thought surrender was about, okay, God, yes, take me. What happened? The surrender was to not get the magic, you know, to not have magic. And I think maybe that's one reason you know, I felt some discomfort when I would hear people say, you know, don't leave before the miracle. I'd be like, you know, don't try to sell me miracles. You know, that's, that's not, I wanna, don't want to hear that. Um, it's not safe. <laughs> it's like, you know, a, a trigger for me talking about miracles. Uh, I need to talk about, I don't know what the opposite of miracles are, but uh, the opposite of miracles. And, um, and so, so, so then step three, you know, becomes something very different from the language of step three, which, you know, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. You know, you read that, and in the context of a Judeo-Christian culture, and it's, if I believe in God, I'll be fixed, you know. Came to believe the power greater than myself could restore me to Cindy, okay. If I, um, I need to believe in God, and then, you know, I have to let God run my life. And, you know, that was... What one of the things I rejected growing up as a Catholic that that the idea that um, in order to have salvation, magic, in order to have salvation, you had to believe stuff that was unbelievable, and what God wanted you to do, it, the test is. If you believe the unbelievable stuff, then we'll give you the goodies. <laughs> uh, you know, I was like, screw you, you know. I mean, that's like so manipulative, right? <laughs> it's just such a, you're just playing me. You know, if that's what you're saying I have to do. So, so that can't, you know, and, and people in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's where I got sober. I'm not supposed to say that because this is being recorded. Anyway, I uh, broke my anonymity, but probably you guessed that already. I didn't see them waiting around for magic stuff to happen, you know. I didn't see them, you know, praying and then hoping that something happened. What I saw them doing was showing up one day at a time, 
doing the next right thing. All this stuff that was not magic and that was really practical and made sense if you thought about it. <laughs> um, the reason I laugh is because I never thought about it before I encountered that. Um, and so turning your will and your life over became something different. It was to, the, to, this, to reality, really. I guess that's the opposite of magic, right? Turning your will and your life over to the care of reality. It doesn't sound very romantic uh, or exciting. Um, but that's kind of what step three is for me. And so, you know, when you come to Dharma, well, what that word Dharma, so if you don't know that word, the Dharma is, means truth. It means the teachings of the Buddha. It could also, you could also define it as it means reality. You know, this is the way it is. This is the way the world works. You know, are you paying attention? You know, I mean, the Buddha says, pay attention and see how the world works. And then try to live in harmony with that. You know, try not to fight it because it's just going to, you're going to lose. You know? so, so turning your will and your life over to the Dharma is turning your will and your life over to reality. What is real? And what's so powerful about the Buddhist teaching is how real it is. And how how he you know he, he gets beyond um, I mean in a way it's very simple but he, he gets beyond the kind of um, a reality it I guess uh, I guess beyond isn't the right word. He, I th- he just gets very specific about what is real, you know, um, and very practical about it. You know, mindfulness practice, right? Pay attention to your body. Okay, that's reality. My body, it's here. I'm sitting here. I can feel it. You know, I can feel my breath. I can hear sounds. Pay attention to your mind. Okay, I'm having thoughts. That's real. They might not be about real things, but the thoughts themselves are happening, so they're real. So what are they? You know, what's going on in my body? What's going on in my mind? And then he starts to point out that there are these frameworks or, or uh, rules, uh, laws governing. So points out everything keeps changing. Everything is impermanent. And then he points out all the implications of that. Well, that means that anything that you have, you're going to lose. That everything as it is, is going to be different. Oh, you mean I, for an addict, the first thing that means is I can't stay high forever. And then he has this thing called the law of karma. Again, he doesn't make this stuff up, he just points it out. Everything that you do has an effect. Again, for an addict, it's like, if I try to stay high forever, there's an effect from that. And it's not that I get to stay high forever. (laughs) When you do stuff to your body, there are effects in your body. 
And when you do stuff to your brain, there are effects in your brain. That you, when you do the same thing over and over again, it becomes a habit, which is a nice word for, the, for addiction. Right? That you, you stop making a decision. The habit makes the decision for you. Addicted has the you know, same root as dictator. Right? I smile because I'm not mentioning any specifics, any specific dictators. <laughs> dictators tell you what to do, right? They tell the people in the country what to do. When you're addicted, you're being told to do what to do by the drug or the alcohol or the compulsion. You don't have a choice anymore. So these are effects. This law. So if you want to live in harmony with reality, you have to understand the law of karma. You have to understand that everything is impermanent. You have to understand that trying to cling to things is fruitless and causes suffering. These are the laws that the Buddha points out. So turning your will and your life over to this is not magic. But it's powerful and transforming. And it works. You, know, you don't have to wait for the phone to ring. You know, it happens here and now. I have to say about step three. I think everybody should just go on like some their you know social media of of their preferred social media and just like you know make a really positive comment about that dharma talk cuz it was so good <laughs> yeah, i know what it was just you know that's what happens when i take a walk you know i've heard a lot of them so yeah oh you're saying my other ones weren't any good i get it this one was in the top yeah four stars yeah, I like to give myself reviews. Um, it's a lot like meditating. So we have time for uh, some discussion or questions or comments. Insults. I know, it is t- well, I don't, you can't call them tough. They're just, no, I'd say it's just the opposite. They're easy. No problems, no issues, just... At peace. It's nice. Wow. Maybe they've let go of views and opinions. Thank you. Maybe you can give us an, a working definition of Dharma that we can use throughout our day. Yeah. Well... It is one of those words that um, doesn't have an English translation. <laughs> A lot of the best Buddhist words are like that, and so we kind of talk around it. And so the literal meaning is truth or natural law. So it's truth with the capital T. The uh, as I said, it's 
sometimes it's used to just refer to the teachings of the Buddha. We call that the Buddha Dharma. Sometimes we just leave out the Buddha part and say the Dharma, but that's what we mean. Um, Ajahn Chah, who was one of the, the Thai forest master, had a very simple formula he had for Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. He said, the Buddha is the one who knows, and the Dharma is the truth of the way things are. You know, it's, it's kind of... Um, almost has to be known to be understood. <laughs> you know, that is, you know, you have to kind of for it for a while and it's sort of for it to for it to really have meaning for you. It's not so much the the definition as the as the meaning that you come to understand through your exploration. But that's the best I can do for now. Might come back to that if I think of something. Well, the only thing is it's being recorded and so people it's really annoying when somebody answers a question and Got you don't it. know what they were okay. responding to. If you'd say your name and phone number to, <laughs> that'd be good. Um, so I really appreciate your kind of stance on the difference between magic and reality. Um, I think for me, you know, not being attached to magic or fantasy is important, but um, being open to kind of the possibility of that there is magic mm -hmm. is good. And would you see that as, um, you know, that in and of itself, living in fantasy, like being just being open-minded mm -hmm. about it, right. um, and not and not being grounded in reality and yeah. what's real? Yeah, I think it, it all. My stance is definitely a personal one. That is to say, I see that I can't, you know, that I have such a tendency to go there that it's not really safe for me. Uh, whereas other people, like, it's more helpful for them if they, you know, if you're somebody who kind of gets too real in a way, you know, like... Um, it's just kind of, it's 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 actually because my wife tends to be on that end of the spectrum, and and you know she like wants to pull me back more to reality, and then I want to pull her more back to magic. Um, and so makes for a balance, but uh, uh, yeah, no, it's it's true, and I actually had this debate one time with another Dharma teacher about grace. And it's very similar, right? Grace is a kind of magic. And, you know, I was arguing very strongly that from a Buddhist viewpoint, everything is 
cause and effect. So grace, there, there can, that grace can only be a manifestation of, it has to have the cause. That it can't be, if there is no cause, then you're talking about nirvana. You know, nirvana is the only thing that's the unconditioned, which is also a term that's sometimes used for God, but not to get too deep there. Um, you know, and he, he felt very strongly, oh no, you know, there, there is grace. And I was like, so, yeah, I, I, it, again, you know, I, I kind of, it isn't for me about um, being right about it. You know, it's about what's useful for me. And so, yeah, I mean, when I talk about it, I'm talking about it for, as, a, as an exploration to look at it, yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, as I said, I was just taking a walk today. I was like, what am I going to talk about? And then I started thinking about this. And I sort of, oh, you know, I didn't really have, it wasn't so much, um, oh, I've got this thing figured out that I'm going to tell people. (laughs) It was like, this is kind of interesting. I think I'll talk about this tonight (laughs) and see what happens. I didn't know that I was going to say, uh, dharma, equate dharma and reality, that actually surprised me. Okay, you next. Hey, Kevin. Hi. You know, I, I'd like to equate um, the unbelievable turning into the believable. Um, with the analogy of, you know, before I came in here and uh, I couldn't believe I could stop drinking. And then it became the believable and I could say, you know, the simplistic way to say it is it was magic. Yeah. You know, and if you want to go into depth and explain it, it wasn't magic. You could say it was hard work or it just came or I did a number of things, but it... uh, yeah, the the unbelievable became the believable. Yeah. Yeah, and and when I share at a meeting, or when I like when I'm the speaker, it's not uncommon for me to at some point say, you know, my life is kind of a miracle, which is the same thing, right? It's like unbelievable. It's something that because if you look at where I started and where I am now, it's hard to imagine that there's a process by which you get there. So that seems, that is, you know, you can say it's kind of miraculous, but strictly speaking, because I think for me it's important to speak strictly, I can see that there's a step-by-step process. Because the other problem with magic and grace and miracles is that we don't have control, any control over them. And so we are then, we're not, not, we're not responsible, but we're also saying to people, well, you might get this, but you might not, because it's just like random, you know, grace. Just like, oh, you know, by the grace of God. Well, God picked me out to stay sober. I don't know if he's going to pick you out to stay sober. 
that, that's where I am not comfortable with those ideas. I think it really sets up this uh, dangerous idea. On the other hand, this, as you say, in casual conversation and in a, in a very kind of natural, heartfelt feeling, we can be like, it's really unbelievable. It's really miraculous what's happened to me. And, you know, I mean, gratitude itself is, is a kind of expression of that. Because gratitude is kind of saying, this just came to me. You know? Rather than there was a cause and effect, and I did my part, and then you know I had my a little bit of white privilege going, and then uh, you know I worked hard, and then it all came together, and here it is. That's, I don't think you need to be grateful. I don't know if you need to be grateful for that. But. So let's give her a chance. So turn right. Yeah. Yeah, you can get her next, but she had her hand up first. Oh, sure. There you go. Sorry about that. I have a question after I I say something. Um, I guess... uh, in life for either of these now is there anything Wow. Um, (laughs) Of course, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure I think of it quite that way, or that that the process of getting to a place of feeling filled up um, it, in some sense, it's a um, it's a letting go rather than trying to fill up. So, um, it's a very a very tricky question. Not tricky, but it's it's a subtle question. I have to kind of see how I can. You know, because it's easy for me to tell you that there's a lot of things that fill me up in my life. I mean, being here, being able to share like this is incredibly gratifying. And that, but how do you get there is the question, you know. And so, you know, recovery starts with letting go, right? It starts with letting go of a behavior, usually, and you know, if you're an addict, start letting go of a substance. But letting go, you know, the, if you think, oh, well, 
there's a vacuum being created if you let go, right? You, you've let go of that behavior. And, you know, before I got sober, I thought, oh, my God, you know, if I stop drinking and using, the, my life is just going to be this gray, flat, bland landscape, but at least I won't be killing myself with drugs and alcohol. That was kind of like how I felt about it. I mean, first of all, going... To, Getting involved in a 12-step program filled me up in a lot of ways. There was so much joy and actually love, <laughs> caring, friendship there that that filled me up. And then this new capacity to even be filled up. You know, I mean, you were talking about like being numbed, right? Well... Right. One of the problems with drugs and alcohol is that they, and other addictions, they take away our capacity to feel, to feel good. You know, we're trying to get away, we want to get rid of the capacity to feel bad. We're trying to get rid of that, but you, you know, you, you can't sort of pick out what you're going to not feel. You just become numb, you don't feel anything. So to me, there was that opening up that comes that I was much more alive, that I didn't realize how dead I was until I opened up in that way. Of course, you know, that also means that, yeah, you feel pain as well. But when you feel pain in a clear way and you're able to see how it arises and what's going on, you can start to engage it in a constructive way, right, with various forms of healing whether it's working the steps or therapy or, you know, self-care of all kinds. Um, you know, I mean, every stage for me of my recovery has been finding things that made life worth living. And really, when I went back to school when I was three years sober, that was like an amazing experience for me. And, and again, like totally unexpected because I dropped out of high school. You know, I hated school. I didn't, I didn't get sober and think, great, now I can go back to school. <laughs> like, but it arrived as a thing to do and I stepped into it and I realized, wow, I'm a different person now than I was 20 years ago when I was in high school or however long it was. And I'm experiencing this. This is actually really interesting. So that was really f fulfilling. Um, you know, and then discovering creative writing. Uh, I mean, to me, creativity is lifesaver. That's why I was a musician. So, you know, I had to do that. Um, and I got married and had a kid, you know. Uh, having a child kind of was about the richest moment of my life. Not messing up her life so far, so that's impressive. I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm just like, those are just among the things that fill me up. You know, yeah. I guess one more. The, my friend back in the back there. I, I owe people time this month because I ended the class early last month oh, by yeah. accident. Remember that? 
I thought the class ended at nine. I don't know why. It never did before. Hi. Um, sorry. Oh, what? I thought it was a woman behind you who was at her hand up. Oh, you were holding your hand up for him? Hmm? She's next. Okay. Good. Go. I just had a quick question. Um, how long did it take you before you became experienced at meditation, or rather when it became an integral part of your life? Well, from the beginning of meditation, I did it addictively. So I used my addictive tendencies in a positive way. It was, but, I mean, actually, it's a good question. I think the term integral is a good, a good term because I did do meditation more as kind of something that wasn't integral to my life. It was only after I got sober that it started to integrate. But even then, I didn't really see it as fully integrated. And it was only uh, when I started to connect the 12 steps with, uh, with meditation and with Buddhism that I think they, that it started to become integrated because uh, as long as they were separate, I didn't have any integration. So it wasn't, but it wasn't about time. It wasn't about time, you know. I mean, in terms of, you know, if you're asking how long did it take before meditation started to work? Um, again, I would say I started out doing meditation for the wrong reasons and in not in great mind states to start with. So I don't think I'm a good example. Think I've seen people become, you know, get very integrated meditation practices, you know, fairly quickly if their if their life is in order, you know, if the rest of their life is in order, you can pick that up, and it can really work in quickly. But if your life isn't in order, meditation doesn't really work that well anyway. Unfortunately, and when I say life is in order, I don't mean you know everything is like perfectly in its place, but it's just that you're not actively doing destructive things and you don't have a big shadow life going on that's sort of unacknowledged. So, yeah. Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you for tonight. And um, I've just, I've been meditating for a long time. You just what? I've been meditating for a long time, doing the 11th step. And I was doing, I've also done Buddhist meditation for a long time as well. And, um, but I, it was like I never kind of put the two together. I don't know how to even describe that. But the higher power in the program was out, was out there. Right. And um, since I've started to um, listen to some Dharma talks that I've discovered uh, that of Noah Levine's that's been really helpful for me. Work on the deep patterns of self-hatred that I just became aware of. That kind of new layer got peeled off, and it was like, oh man, another layer of self-hatred. Or um, one of the things since I've been working with uh, these Dharma. Really quickly, like mm-hmm. within a couple of weeks, 
Uh, it's, it's lifting. Okay, I was, it was happening over and over. And finally, I kind of went to, back to my old way, which was just, all right, God, Jesus, just fucking take this obsessive thought away from me. And it worked. Mm-hmm. So it's this blending, going back and forth with working with it, the way that I'm learning to work with it again at this phase. Um, but also when uh, it, it's like, it, it, it's not just one way. Right. It, it's, it's really, it's got to be using all the tools I've ever learned yeah. in all spiritual disciplines. Um, Well, yeah, and it goes back to something I said in the beginning of the evening about, you know, the different approaches to recovery, not communicating with each other, and rather, like, why do we have to create these conflicts? Because, yeah, there's times when it feels like there isn't, you can't find the God inside. (laughs) And so the most useful thing is to pray to God or to Kuan Yin or somebody. I mean, I found myself in the middle of a, month-long retreat several years ago saying the Hail Mary. I couldn't even really remember it. But what I remembered, I was like, this is a really weird prayer. <laughs> like, I used to say it when I was six years old. I didn't know what a womb was, you know? But, uh, but the end of it says, you know, be with me in the hour of my death. I thought, oh, yeah, this is good. This is Buddhist. So, I mean, I think it, I totally understand and appreciate that people can feel very strongly about their atheism. You know? I just find it unnecessary, you know? And, but other people do. You know, that's like if people have been wounded or they're just intellectually not okay with them or whatever it's fine you know what i don't like to see is when people use something like atheism as an excuse to not get sober you know like oh well i can't work the steps because i don't believe in god where's the where's the bar it's like what the hell does that have to do with anything you know i mean anybody who tells you you can't get sober without believing in god i think is committing a mortal sin actually <laughs> that was a joke. But anyway, <laughs> you know, they're going to go to hell. <laughs> no, but it's just like cruel. I mean, why give that to, you know? Okay, I gave you two extra minutes this month, so I'll work my pay off my debt from last month a little bit at a time because if I keep people late. But let's just do a little uh, closing of... Uh, some sort, see what comes out. So as we turn our lives over, may we be very clear of what is real. We understand reality. 
to live in harmony with it. Be the suffering of the world. Send love and compassion. Beings that suffer. The earth that suffers. Air and the water. May we bring wisdom and compassion to every moment of our lives. Thank you. Uh, hope, uh, if you're interested in this non-residential retreat, it uh, starts uh, a week from today with three days. So there's flyers around. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.